This week's guest is Aubrey K. Slater. Aubrey is a trans woman and a former first lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps and a true hospitality professional. Currently, Aubrey is a co-owner and the chief development queen for St. Luna Charcoal Filtered Moonshine. Aubrey's journey from straight alpha male to glitter-covered go-go dancer to becoming a Marine, shot multiple times and honorably discharged, living in Eastern Europe, entering the hospitality industry and moving back to the U.S., working with Dale DeGroff to become a homeless, to her current role at St. Luna Moonshine has, well, been quite the roller coaster ride to say the least. Aubrey has an unwavering positive attitude on life and her story is amazing to say the least. We split this terrific conversation up into two parts. So this is part one of our interview with Aubrey. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip. This is Dan. That's me, man. What's going on, man? Uh, you know, uh, really nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's the same fucking shit every week. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm going to stop asking you that because <laughs> I'll at least wait till the lockdown's over, then I'll start asking you what the hell's going on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, nothing's going on. Same <laughs> shit, different day. Yeah. Well, we're just, uh, for me, it's just setting up this patio situation for when we get back open for the first phase of outdoor dining. So once again, I'd like to give a big thanks to the Kitchener BIA, Linda and Lori, you guys are amazing. And Vaji from 2020 Vision has given us this whole uh, parking lot to set up a patio. Bonus. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, well, well, we have a great guest as usual. Aubrey Slater will be joining us in just a minute here. And if uh, that sounds like an action hero name, well, it's not that far off. Yep. <laughs> her, her life is pretty much like an action movie. So <laughs> we'll be bringing her in shortly. Uh, we'll get some of the uh, particulars out of the way first. If you are liking what we're doing here on the Industry Podcast, you should be subscribing, rating, reviewing, leaving a comment. So it's uh, very easy for you to do and helps us out tremendously. That is correct. If you want to be a guest on the show, you should DM us at the Industry Podcast on Instagram. That's the easiest way to get a hold of us. Or like like our friend David Souk from St. Luna uh, Moonshine, uh, you can maybe recommend somebody who works for you, like Aubrey Slater. But <laughs> so that's how the, our guest got to us today. And uh, once again, of course, a big shout out to Zach Hanna at Zach Hanna Design for all the great artwork. Yes, thanks, Zach. Okay, well, we have a lot to talk about with our guest today. So joining us from the Bronx, New York, is Aubrey Slater. How's it going, Aubrey? Ah, it's going really well. After uh, three straight days of rain, it's finally cleared up and it's gorgeous outside. So all is good in the hood. Nice. And you were mentioning sort of right before we started recording that things are starting to open up for you. So that's exciting. Maybe you get to go to bars and restaurants. I know it is. Um, I got to sit at a bar for the first time like a, a couple weeks ago, and it was just, uh, it was just so spirit lifting. It felt so good, especially you know being an old bartender. Like just seeing that dynamic back is just uh, really just lifted my spirits. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we can't wait. Yeah, a couple <laughs> weeks away here. Soon to come. To be determined. Right. Let's get those vaccines. Okay, well, let's just jump right into it because you've had a super, you got an amazing story to tell. So we'll start it. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Pittsburgh, correct? Um, I was born in Pittsburgh. Um, well, right outside Pittsburgh. If you are a football fan, I'm from the same sleepy little town called Beaver Falls that Joe Namath is from. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm a, I'm a product of the 70s. Um, and that's when, like, the steel industry closed down in Pittsburgh, and it was, like, the great diaspora, and everybody just 
from Western Pennsylvania to split. So I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, right outside of Montgomery County, Maryland. Oh, okay. Uh, and, well, obviously this is the industry podcast. We almost mostly want to talk about your life today, but uh, just for the for purposes of the podcast, did you at some point get interested in the service industry? Was that before or after your stint as a U.S. Marine? Um, it was, I would say, before um, I started in college. Um, I spent my freshman year at Ohio, at the Ohio State University. Uh, I was going to make sure. Sorry, I'm <laughs> go blue. Oh, that's okay. Our record speaks for itself. I can't even really be talking. (laughs) Sorry. But still, like if it's um if it's if it gets down to it, I will always um, root for the Big Ten. So that's that's fair. We're we're together on that one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, after that, I uh, I basically got homesick. Things didn't turn out great in Columbus, Ohio. So I, I transferred back and went to Georgetown and finished up there. But, uh, yeah, I bartended while I was in school. Um, I worked in a hair salon while I was in school. I started off as, as a shampoo person and in, in, in Georgetown, D.C., and, and that was just a, a blast. But, uh, yeah, I had a few, like, waiting, you know, serving jobs, a couple bartending jobs. So I got into the business uh, pretty pretty early on. And uh, okay, so what what point do you decide that you're gonna give it back to the Marines? Like, what draws you to the military service? Um, well, back then it was the, <laughs> you get yourself in a certain situation, and, and there was a choice given. <laughs> so. Oh. Oh, but do, you, do you want to do you want to talk any more about that, or would you, should we just leave it out there? I don't know how like real dirty do you want to get? Yeah, as dirty as you want to get. We want the stories. Oh man, well, I mean, growing up in D.C., you know, it's like you're you're you know a lot of you're just surrounded by politicos and you know um, want to be uh, famous people. I mean, D.C. is like what they call the ugly people's Hollywood, or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and back then, this was like the early 90s. So I was um, such a party kid. You know, I was a club kid. I was uh, sneaking from D.C. up to New York on the weekends and uh, going from this like alpha male life with girlfriend and, you know, what have you and going up to New York and I would uh, dress up as a girl, you know, put on glitter, wings and basically dance on boxes at Limelight and Palladium and all the real big, like, Peter Cashin um, clubs. And you worked at the tunnel. You worked at the tunnel, right? (laughs) Yeah, the tunnel, the view. What was that like? Oh, it was insane. I mean, I wish I could tell you more, but I I was... (laughs) That's all right. I have have periods of my life like that too. (laughs) It was was a lot of fun. It was, it was a blast. Um, and the funny thing now is like, I always said, if I were to move to New York city, I know I was going to, I'll either end up homeless or dead. I moved to New York city, ended up homeless. (laughs) (laughs) Self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, DC at the time, like I had a group of friends and, you know, we would sell ecstasy and acid and, you know, whatever else we could get our hands on, like all the the raves and the clubs. (laughs) And uh, we met this one gentleman who was uh, part of the 
Colombian cartels. Oh, wow. And he really took shining to us. So <laughs> he was more than happy to like help us out because uh, we were all kind of well-connected. Mm-hmm. And I was at work one night and it was like a, a slow Tuesday. No one's in the bar. No one had been in the bar for a while. And I was closing up and these three well-dressed people come in and they're like, are you closed? And I'm like, well, you know, they're like, we're just celebrating. We just want a nightcap and then we'll be out of your hair. I'm like, yeah, come on in. As long as you don't mind me cleaning up around you. Mm-hmm. They're talking. It's two gentlemen and a lady. And, uh, eventually they're like paying their tab and they're like, do you, would the bartender mind if we tipped him in, in, in cocaine? And I was like, Lock the door. <laughs> so, uh, I, I was like all about it. So, you know, they're putting lines in the bar. We're having a good time, great conversation. And I'm just like, so what exactly are we celebrating? And the one guy's like, oh, well, he's just received the brand new ambassadorship to Egypt. And I was like, well, congratulations. Wow. I was awesome. And like the other person was like a lawyer and the other one was like worked in food and beverage for the National Gallery of Art. And I just remember sitting there and just like the wheels are turning. And I'm just like, by the way, I think where does the brand newly appointed ambassador to Egypt procure his cocaine? And they're just like, oh, we get it from a D.C. cop. But I was just like, oh, God, uh-huh. oh, I, it all. I was so mad. And I was, I was just like, I got a deal for you. Right. I was like, if you, if I was like, I'll get you the best uncut, purest cocaine you can find. And I'll undercut anybody you get it from. But you have to help me out and get me connected to the people that you know and party with. And so they did. <laughs> <laughs> and so it began and it was a, a wild ride and it got really hectic and it got to the point where like there was like my friends are on the evening news um, <laughs> you know, it's like I have one friend calling me up and being like turn on the news I'm like what channel he's like any channel just turn it on <laughs> you know it's like a friend's yearbooks up there I have like a white van outside my apartment oh fuck <laughs> you know, it was just it got real crazy and then it all went to shit and so with the people that I was selling to I mean, I was going to like parties since I was at Georgetown, going to parties with like the Gore daughters and uh, the Coors kids from the Coors Brewing Empire and like just like all this money and like Saudi Arabian princes. And I mean, it was insane. And there's me with my broke ass from from Rockville, Maryland. (laughs) And I was just like. I was like, here's the deal. I was just like, it's getting bad. And I was like, I got a lot of shit to talk about. They're just like, okay. <laughs> so just calm down and we're going to pull some strings and just get you, you know, out of, out of the attention. And so they're like, here's your options. <laughs> Off into the military I went. Oh, wow. 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 I did what not a... expect that story. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I, before, we, before we move on, I got to know, did you sell to the Gore Daughters? I mean, I'm not one to kiss That's fine. But That's fine. I, I thought I might be able to squeeze it out of you. This is the 90s, and we all had fun. Let's yeah. put it that way. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're, saving, they're all saving the environment now anyway. So. Exactly. You know, they're great girls. They were back then. They are now. And I'm not really saying if they did or not. So okay, there it is. Perfect. 
Perfect. So that's crazy. So you go off and not just any like form of the military to the Marines. And um, well, let's talk a little bit about your experience there. At this point, have you have you already started like obviously you were uh, dressing up as a woman and going to clubs, whatever. So you've already some of this is already coming out a little bit, but you probably be obviously haven't made it all the way there. Um, Like talk to me a little bit about being like a trans woman trapped inside your body at this point and then being in the Marines? I, I, you know, I've had people, I don't know if people were serious when they asked me this question or if it's just in jest, but people are just like, so did you dress up in the Marines? I'm like, listen, I was like, <laughs> women don't dress like women in the Marines. Right. <laughs> they probably wear the same standard government issued boxer shorts that we did. So <laughs> I, I, really, it was a moot point. I mean, it was something that was like always an issue in my life from the time I was a kid. Like I knew, I knew I was different. I knew, you know, that I was in this like wrong body. I would, you know, go to bed at night and like pray to like a, a fairy godmother to come down and cast a spell and turn me into a girl or, you know, some alien with a, with a machine to run me through it or, you know, a whole litany of just like fantasies I would have. But um, this was, also the late 80s early 90s and most of the trans women i knew were either drag queens or you know they they were sex workers and i just did not want that life for me mm-hmm. you know i was just like i don't care if i have to repress whatever it is i need to repress but you know trying to figure out how to act like a man when you're not really a man you tend to go a little overboard uh, and yeah you know, <laughs> in situations that I, I might not have been in otherwise um, you were uh, you were shot. Yeah, a couple times. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, we, yeah, need, we need some info on that. <laughs> well, I went into, I was going into the Marines as a MEPS program, which is like a military entrance program for uh, officers. Okay. But I was just like, if I'm going to be in the Marines, I was just like, I need the respect of the people who are going to serve under me. And so I opted to go straight to basic training instead, but I got my ass worked. Like they knew I was a college kid. They knew I was going to be an officer and it just was painful. Um, So my only like real piece, and this is, it's, you know, irony at its best. The was on the firing range during marksmanship, you know, where I could, sit there and it was, you know, I studied philosophy <laughs> and uh, for me, it was a very Zen experience, you know, it was me and there's that target and mm. that was it. And I was able to just zone out and, and really focus in and I had a natural talent. So those scores were high and that carried with me when I finally got out of basic and went to Miramar for, uh, for officer candidate school. Um, while out there, uh, trying to figure out what my MOS would be, um, I was uh, approached by one of the instructors at, at the scout school and asked if I would be interested. Um, I fit the like the, the, the psychiatric profile. I, um, I had a, a natural talent for marksmanship and they were just like, you know, see what you can do. Mm-hmm. And I did and did well. And, uh, you know, when you're young, you know, so it says, oh, you're going to be a scout sniper. It's just like, you're thinking you're like G.I. Joe and a ninja. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, yes. Don't are my dreams, are you not? Is that not what happens? <laughs> I know, I know. I have played Snake Eyes in movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's just like with youth comes lack of perspective and, uh, you know, everything just sounds super cool and fun. Uh, without any of the thinking about like repercussions of your future actions. <laughs> and mm. so I did that. And then off to Okinawa, I went um, to Camp Gonzalez uh, for jungle reconnaissance training. Mm. And even now, you know, it's like things have gotten, you know, more hectic and more serious. It's still like, you know, I, I, I've been put in this like training program where I get to basically go out in the jungle and live like, you know, you know, survivor man. And I mean, the worst part about it really was having to eat weird stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so still like the reality of it all hadn't really set in. Right. Um, from there over to the Philippines for a quick minute. And then I was, uh, got my first deployment over into uh, Mogadishu. Okay. Oh, and she got real, real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, no fucking around there. <laughs> yeah, and this is like after Day of the Ranger, or as you know, most people know it as like Black Hawk Down, and there's still like you know militia leaders and military juntas, and there's you know your tribal warlords, and you know, it, it, there's there's pirates, and there's gun runners, and there's diamond smugglers and there's just like every kind of bad guy you know in the catalog that are surrounding this place and the people of Somalia really don't have anywhere to turn mm. you know to enter us <laughs> right wow so okay so and so what like what's your day to day like what are you doing there day to day like obviously you're there to try and keep some semblance of peace but uh what, what what's, what's it's the a day lot of shit. it's a lot of boring shit you tape houses basically you take masking tape and you tape out floor plans buildings and then you just run exercises um for oh, what they call house cleaning like going door to door seeing like Who's amassing weapons? Who's, you know, got making bombs? Who's, you know, conspiring and doing weird stuff? And, um, and then, you know, it was basically, you know, going out, going up high, watching, you know, Marines on the ground and just doing, you know, going through the town, making sure everything's okay, patrolling. Um, a lot of just like, shooting at you know targets and just keeping sharp and a lot of playing pool basically you know it's just like I, I saw maybe seal teams and they were just like dogs just like chomping at the bit you know like mm. every time they were called out like their mission was scrubbed and you know they're just like constantly like ah, ah trying to get it you know but <laughs> never being able to and it's just that kind of thing like you never really know when the shit's going to hit the fan and you're just always trying to prepare for the worst. Wow. What are the colleagues like? Did you make any like lasting friendships like through the military or just like, just like more short term because you're moving around and stuff like that? Um, I still have a few buddies that I talk to. Um, not as much as I used to. Sure, distance. Uh, yeah. Comes yeah. Into play, right? Life goes on. Yeah. Especially like I was in the military, like, pre-Facebook and all that stuff. So it's like, you lost touch with somebody, you lost touch. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I've been able to find a couple people, but it's just, I don't really think about, you know, my military life 
as much anymore. It's like 20 years in the past, you know, and it's obviously, you know, being my goals nowadays are being a hot chick, you know, and being, (laughs) you know, I have different, I have different squad goals these days. So this doesn't really pop into mind, but, um, Africa was interesting. I was there for a few years. Um, I went, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, no, no problem at all. Uh, like, so how did you end up getting shot and where? Well, with this, <laughs> um, I always, I always requ- equate that question to from like mall rats. Like I had sex in a really uncomfortable place, the back of a Volkswagen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, people ask me like, where'd you get shot? I'm always yeah. wondering like, do they mean like where in the world? I actually mean both. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, after Africa, I was in Somalia, Eritrea. I was in um, Rwanda. I was in Congo. And then um, I was uh, sent to the Bosnian-Croatian conflict. Okay. So I was over in Serbia and cost, outside of Kosovo when that happened. And that, um, that happened on what we call a roadkill mission, where basically I had to hike into a certain position um, and wait for uh, on the side of the road, basically, and wait for a convoy to come through and to take out a target. Wow. And there was a lot more people a lot more troops than than were originally reported by Intel. And I saw them and I called it in, explained to it, didn't advise it, got the go ahead, um, took the shot, hit the target, but then had like 30, 30 Serbian soldiers chasing me through the woods with my partner. So (laughs) he didn't make it, unfortunately. And, you know, this is, um, normally on Memorial day, I'm shit faced. Yeah. No, not, not, not the best day of the year for me. Right. But um, it is what it is, you know, and I got shot in the hip. I got shot in the hand um, basically while running, um, carried my partner for a couple miles, it feels like. And then when I knew he wasn't going to make it, just dumped my mor- morphine packs into him and, you know, turned on a GPS tracker, called in an airstrike and made it to my pickup zone. Um, you are so, a GI Joe. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it sounds really, you know, like action packed, but my God, it's just like, you know, it's hard to really remember details because it's so adrenaline fueled and you're just so crazy. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like hearing A10s come in and bombs going off and just like, hoping to God, like, you know, no one was catching up to me and was bleeding out and heard, uh, heard an air force, um, helicopter come in. It was PJ's pair jump team <laughs> coming down to, to snatch me up. And I just remembered them asking me my security questions and saying, it's okay, son, you're going to be all right. And then waking up in a military hospital in Frankfurt. Um, and then that was it. And that was like five years and they wanted me to stay, and I was just like, I think I've given enough. <laughs> yeah. Hoorah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, out I went into the world, all kinds of weird. <laughs> so, okay, so now, I mean, those are crazy stories, but at some point you got to get on with your life now. You're out, out of the military. Is this when, now, were you, were you already thinking about getting back into the service industry, or do you just didn't know what you were going to do at this point? 
I really didn't know what I was going to do. And then I was like hanging out with a friend who had a connection. And I ended up going down to Jamaica to, in the grill <laughs> and bartending for a summer. Um, in a, oh my goodness, I'm having a hard time with the name. It's like the Swingers, the Swingers um, Resort. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fuck. I'm saying I know what you're talking about, but maybe I should. It's killing me. <laughs> I guess this comes with age. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I was down there trying to collect myself, and, you know, it's just, oh, hedonism. Oh, hedonism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did that, came back, um, and basically I was like, you know, this is easy, it's fun. I'm going to stick with it. And uh, was bartending in D.C. again and worked all kinds of venues, you know, from like uh, a really super popular like gay bar to local, you know, dive bars to fine dining restaurants. And uh, I bartended for the Kimpton Hotels and um, some of their bars. And yeah, just uh, really enjoyed it and uh, did really well. <laughs> so I was like voted fastest bartender in DC in like year 2001, something like that. <laughs> so, but um, I was just uh, <laughs> just doing my thing. And then one day I, had, I was uh, living in this apartment in DC and came home from work after a lunch shift and saw the most gorgeous pair of legs outside of my bedroom window. And there was these two girls sitting out back. And I had just moved in the building and I didn't have a key to the gate to get into the back courtyard. And I'm like trying to talk to these girls and it turns out they're German. So <laughs> they're like, uh, I was just, I was like, I don't know if you understand me, just freeze. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. And ran like 15 blocks to my 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 neighbor's job to get the keys to come back and meet these girls. And then ended up falling in love with one of them and then moving to Berlin. Oh, wow. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't want to call you transitory, but. <laughs> um, so Berlin in that era must have been pretty fucking crazy, too. Oh, it was wild. It was wild. Um, most people, I was living in East Berlin, yep. and I, it was unified at the time, but there was still very social differences. Like, people from West Germany really looked down at people from East Germany like they were, you know, peasants, you know, because they had lived in communism for so long. You know, they were excited about bananas. Right. You know, so this was a few years afterwards, of course, like 11, 12 years after the wall came down and uh, East Berlin was hot. It was fun. And we lived, my girlfriend and I first lived with her parents in this little town called Oranienburg outside of Berlin in the Burbs and then moved into an apartment in Alexanderplatz, which was just like the host troll, the hookers, drug dealers, not a great part of town, but I lived in like the hood in DC for so long. I was just like, that's fine. You know, like there's nothing yeah. for me. Yeah, you know, I've seen so much worse by this point in my life, and I'm only like 26. You know, it's like yeah. yeah. So I um 
did what anybody else who does, who doesn't speak the language, you know, I got a job working in a kitchen, right. you know, I was, yeah. <laughs> I was dishwashing, I was prepping, I was being yelled at a lot. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, that was, it was a really good time. Yeah. And so were you like, you're only 26 at this point. Sure. Like, sure. You had a, a little hiccup, but wouldn't hiccup, but like, that's not the right way to put it, but like you had a little time out in the military and then are you back to like party life at this point? Um, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, you know, at this point in time, like just trying to deal with like day-to-day life and reality was just kind of challenging still, right. you know, waking nightmares. Um, God, still to this day, I still have constant nightmares of people chasing me and people out to get me and trying to kill me. So, <laughs> like that hasn't changed. Um, so I guess I was still kind of like letting off steam at this point, yeah, but sure. I, I was doing my best and but we would go to clubs and raves and you know do all that fun stuff that young people do and then we all moved to Prague oh fuck I love Prague that place is awesome oh my god and in like 2001 it was still just it was so cheap you know there's no euro I don't know if they use the euro now but I mean back then yeah I was there in like 90s Seven, I think so, and it was oh, you know, yeah, like I couldn't believe how cheap it was, and and like how good their beer is. Oh, so good, so good. The food is definitely uh, it's delicious but heavy. But it was interesting. Like there was six of us living in a three bedroom flat for like five hundred bucks a month. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. so. We're literally like kings. I mean, like royalty. I had saved up a bunch of money, you know. So we're like millionaires in Prague. So I um, ended up working, uh, getting a job in Prague, working for this Irish guy at his Irish pub that was in the ground floor of our building. Oh, jeez! <laughs> it turns out that he was he was selling. He was like a, a weapons dealer. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> He's like this, like wild, like well, the every guy would have been disappointed if he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no, right. <laughs> so we 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 hit it off. <laughs> and uh, we, we had a good time. And basically, me and my friends are just like going to clubs, buying like black label champagne from Russia, like caviar. You could go out to dinner there for, you know, six people, three courses and beers, and it'd be like 50 bucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I remember going like, to, you know, those little brew pubs they have in the basement there? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I remember like going to one with my friend and they would just come and just slap like what they made one kind of beer. Right. And so they would just slap a couple down in front of you and they just put a little tick on a piece of paper at the end of your table. And they just keep bringing them until you essentially tell them to stop. And we were there. We saw two different walking bands come through. Like we must have been there for nine, ten hours. We ate twice and (laughs) had like at least a dozen pints each. And like our bill came to now, granted, this is back in like 97, but like the equivalent of essentially 45 Canadian dollars. (laughs) It was ridiculous. I know it was. We were throwing money money around like we were like mobsters, and we had a beat up old van and just drove around and just fucked off. <laughs> and my girlfriend had to go back to Berlin, and I was there basically by myself, and just 
left to my own devices. I'm like basically a rent boy now for like weird German sex tourists and hanging out at weird places. And I, pre- I did a couple porns in, in the Czech Republic and, and just like had a real good time. <laughs> Went back to Berlin for a hot minute. Um, and then came back to DC yet again. <laughs> so, so back to DC, bartended for a little bit. Had the pleasure of like working for a hot minute with Del DeGroff. Yeah, um, okay, okay. I'm going to stop you right there if you don't mind. I'd like to talk about that because this is someone who has come up on our uh, for obvious reasons on this show like quite a bit. Yeah, I would say a dozen times easily for people as like their sort of hero in the industry, right? So talk to me. How did you come? To, how did you come to work with him? And like, what did you learn from him? And um, what's he like? I mean, I think the. He was super cool. I mean, just very kind, um, uh, just a phenomenal mentor. I didn't work with him for very long. He was in D.C., hired to do a cocktail menu for a restaurant. I was bartending at some place, and he was also doing a, a book tour. I met him that way. And then when the book tour, he was wrapping it up and doing the cocktail menu, I worked with him at the restaurant and, you know, before then, like during the whole like nineties and even early two thousands, you know, like most cocktails were made with like roses, lime juice, grenadine, mm-hmm. daily sour mix, margarita mix. Um, and Dale was like, what are you people thinking? <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's just like, I remember him showing me a mojito. <laughs> it's just like, blew my mind you know yeah, like, yeah. you know like you, I, I I still remember at the bar he asked the bar back to juice limes and the kid got a regular juicer and just started <laughs> shooting limes in it with the fuel and everything <laughs> and he was like what are you doing like, wait. like no 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 I mean it was just like that kind of like evolution was happening you know going from these like the days of you know sex on the beach and all the shooters like melon balls and broke down golf carts and sex with alligators and brain hemorrhages and all this other crazy shit i'm literally having like a little bit of flashback flashback and acid reflux to university (laughs) right now it's just like oh my god all Who didn't enjoy a good redheaded slut back in the day? Or, <laughs> well, you know, that's, a, that's a whole different story, obviously. I like those. So I think the thing that I learned the most with him was, you know, me- properly measuring out ingredients, mm. um, using quality, you know, spirits, um, Velvet Falernum. I'm pretty sure he is responsible for the whole Velvet Falernum thing being here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, using fresh fruits, fresh juices, fresh, you know, like mint, stuff like that. And, um, <clears throat> but at that point in time, and I, I guess it was just because of like the time period, you know, for him, it was like I learned. In a cocktail, it's equal parts citrus, equal parts sugar. You know, that's how you keep it balanced. And, you know, now the palates are a little bit more sophisticated where it's like 0.75 ounces of of lime juice, 0.5 ounces of simple syrup. And, you know, for a more sophisticated palate, like all those drinks back then were just sweet. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, but that was, you know, still a step up from the garbage that everybody else was drinking, you know, during the early 2000s with the whole martini bar craze. Yes. Where it was, just, if they called, they called any fucking drink that you put in a martini glass a martini. But really, exactly. like, what you're drinking is uh, like Gatorade with alcohol in it. But I guess you can call it a martini if you put it in that glass. Uh, I was sort of coming up around that same time, a little bit before you, I think, but like the, but I also recognize that moment where things kind of shifted from like sweet to savory and people was like whoa people were like you like you can actually have a drink that's not like saccharine and sweet but actually kind of has some uh, savory qualities to it and like you know like salty and like uh and like spicy and like and these these ideas were mind-blowing back then now it's like i can imagine coming up now it's just like that's what you just learned yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like a basic building block now. It's like now I'm like reading uh, Jamie Boudreaux's book and it's like, get this like, you know, hom- sonic homogenizer. I'm like, what? you know, it's just like I, I, I love like learning about all these processes, especially now with all the, like the molecular gastronomy coming in and you're seeing like, you know, caviar and <laughs> people are using sous vides and mm-hmm. sonic homogenizers and I'm like, it, it's so cool, but it's just like, I'm trying to, when you're at home and you got this book, you know, it's like the equivalent of like trying to read uh, Thomas Keller's French Laundry when you've never cooked before. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Like, I, I, you know I'm like yeah. getting on Google, like, oh, I want a sonic homogenizer. $3,000. And then, but the, you know that what happens then is you're just like, okay, I'm going to find a cheap way to do this. <laughs> and, and then you start getting, you're forced to get creative a little bit, right? Like, um, Okay, so, exactly. so you're back in DC. You're, what what happens after that? There's uh, uh, you at some point go to California, correct? Um, from DC, I uh, I was just kind of over it. Mm. It was like 9/11 happened. The DC sniper happened. Right. You know, I'd been there all my life, and you know, it's just like oh, I just needed a change of scenery. And I was like, well, Maui sounds really cool. <laughs> oh, right, Maui. I for that. Skip for that. <laughs> yeah, that does sound cool. <laughs> yeah, the like, I'm going to Maui. Right. And so I talked about it for a while, like, like a year or so. And I remember coming home from work, and I was living in Alexandria, Virginia at the time. And I'm going home from work in a cab with my roommate. And, uh, we're drunk, you know, a little coked up, and it's like yeah. two in the morning, and I'm just like, man, I can't wait till I'm living in Maui. He's like, man, you're never fucking moving to Maui. He's like, give it up. Yeah. He's just yeah. like, this, this is the pipe dream. I'm like, no, fuck you. That's it. Naysayer. Naysayer. I just, I was, <laughs> so I was just like, that's it. So sight unseen, I just up and moved to Maui. <laughs> just <laughs> left and my friends were like you're crazy like you're gonna get there and you live such an urban life and you're going into the middle of nowhere on an island you're gonna lose your shit well that that was it was the exact opposite i just fell in love with island life it was so fun and what were you um did you find work in bars there as well Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the one great thing about, you know, being a bartender, just being in the service industry, period. 
<laughs> you know, it's like wherever you go, it's just like there's a job market for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time I've really had, I, there's only been a couple times in my life where I found it incredibly difficult to find a job. And one was during like the financial collapse of, you know, 2008. Sure. Um, but I moved to Hawaii, got a job waiting tables at, at this one place, like in Lahaina, like right on the water. And I was also working for uh, West Maui Parasail and putting people up in parachutes. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Maui was basically just once again, just fucking off. You know, like I worked at Cheeseburger in Paradise for like breakfast and lunch. Then I would work at Bubba Gum Shrimp House for dinner. So it's like one job I'm wearing a hula skirt and a Hawaiian shirt. And then the next job I was being called a gumper. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Uh, what, yeah. What's kind of cool? Well, there's many things that are cool about you, but there, one thing I think that's cool about you is that you will just take any fucking job. Like you've, you're coming off working with Dale DeGroff and you've been in like high end cocktail bars. You've been in fine dining restaurants and now you're working at Bud and Gumps. Like how for you, is it just like whatever or are you is there part of you like this is beneath me right now? No, not at all. Especially like when you're in, um, it's like I was in a tropical paradise Mm -hmm. and I, um, I just did what the locals do. You know, there's like a couple of fine dining places there, but the money was at cheeseburger in paradise. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. They had a line out the door for lunch and dinner. I mean, those the, the servers were walking with like four or five hundred dollars a shift. Oh, geez, yeah. Jesus Christ! So, I mean, you you would just have like large families come in, you know, with groups of eight, just order fries, burgers, you know, and and milkshakes and sodas, and then they'd be out the door. Yeah. And it was just like this turn and burn, you know. So it was just like there was no complaining at all. Plus, like. I'm working in paradise and it's like these places, some of them don't even have roofs, you know, you're right there on the water. And like, I get up in the morning at like 6am to make it to a breakfast shift. And no matter how bad of a mood you were in, it's like, you'd, I'd start walking. And next thing you know, it's like, I see Molokai, Lanai, Kaolave right across, you know, the Maui Bay. And, and it's just like instantly you're like, oh shit, I'm in a good mood. Yeah. That's crazy. That, uh, yeah, and, and you had, like, a good attitude about it, too, because it's kind of like the job's the job, and it's all sort of – you can work in different sort of um, uh, styles of service, but at the end of the day, we're just bringing food and drinks to people, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think one of my other, like, favorite people, you know, as far as, like, who, who I've – who I've worked for is uh, Southern Teague mm-hmm. most recently. And he put it so eloquently that this is like burned into my brain that, you know, in its essence, we sell hospitality. Yes. You know, we're selling the experience and the food and, and the drinks are like an added bonus, mm-hmm. you know, but it's the experience that we're really providing. And, you know, environment has so much to do with that. And it's just like, it doesn't matter where you are as long as like you're with a good team. Yeah. You know, you're, you're making decent money and you've got a great attitude and you know, you can work anywhere really. Right. Yeah, I know. And well, I think your attitude is great because there are lots of people who have, would have 
gone through like employment like you went through like in these high-end places and then been like oh, i'm not gonna fucking work at bubba gums but but you're right like it's just the job's the job and the hospitality is hospitality no matter what form of it you're you're offering i, I mean i don't i don't want to sound horrible like i i did i i, I love cheeseburger in paradise bubba gums i really didn't last all that long <laughs> I, I, yeah <laughs> Every time you're like, it was like basically like training summer camp for, for first time servers, you know, it's just like, yeah, I can imagine. So it's just like, you're told to say, whenever you see somebody, Hey, how are you? But they would do it to each other, like the servers. And I remember grabbing one and putting them up against the wall. be like, ask me one more time. Ask me one more time. (laughs) What happens? Don't ask me. I'm not a customer. You simpleton. And after a while, I was just like, I can't take it anymore. Like I'd have to ask like trivia about the movie, you know, to every table. And I, you know, it got to the point where my trivia questions were like, what disease did Jenny die from? (laughs) Like what were the names of the two hookers that Captain Dan picked up? Uh, Stella and uh, uh, that's amazing. Uh, Long Lakes Lenore. <laughs> uh, okay. But, um, so why did I, you why did you leave Paradise? Why did you come back to the mainland? mainland? Yeah. No. Uh, well, Paradise comes in many forms, and sometimes Paradise comes with blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> so, I. Uh, I met this lovely young lady and I fell deeply in love with her and she was from the Bay Area and had to move back to San Francisco and I followed. Yeah. Left my Aina behind. Yeah. And so San Francisco obviously has an amazing um, uh, cocktail, fine dining, beer scene, like what, whatever you want, whatever, wherever you want to go with your service career, you can do it there. This is true. And uh, I am. San Francisco is not for me. Um, Evil lives in San Francisco. Uh, (laughs) How so? I want to know. It's just okay. I I describe it as, you know, it's like, say you've got problems in your life. You know, you're trying to escape something. You're trying to run from something. San Francisco is as far west as you can go. You can only run so far before you drown in the Pacific Ocean. Right. And, 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 and trouble just has a way of finding itself in San Francisco. Mm. Um, I had just like some dark days. I, you know, I was trying to still like my gender identity was, you know, fighting with it. Um, you know, problems with drug abuse and depression and putting my girlfriend through just like a a hellish experience. And she was obviously much more in love with me than I was with myself. Mm. And, um, I was just very self-destructive, but I kept busy. Um, you know, my first job there was waiting tables at this place called globe, which was like the chef hangout. Um, like all the sommeliers came there after work. All the famous chefs came there after work. Um, so it was a great experience. We served till food till two, which in San Francisco, that's like five in the morning elsewhere. 
Like that city shuts down at two. It's over. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah. It's very quiet after two AM. Um Well that's like Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot of places really, you know, you get spoiled when you live in a place like New York City or say like Vegas where it's just like you can or New Orleans where you can just like party till you just drop. Mm-hmm. Um but uh I I realize like everybody there, like everybody and their brother was a wine expert, or at least they thought so. Right. And, you know, being, you know, making this my career and I wanted to, I had to know more than my, my guests did. Like that was it. You know, I wasn't going to be caught with my pants down, Right. you know, with, you know, with all these questions. Um, so I started studying and, I got my first sommelier certification in Cincinnati. Then I got my second sommelier certification up in Napa. Mm. So I did work with cocktail bars there. I worked with some famous cocktail bars there. Um, but I think my life in wine was uh, was the most important thing that I learned while living in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wine... I was a wine buyer for Jean-Tia Jacks, this famous French restaurant downtown, and then also helped with their wine program at their sister restaurant, Bistro Jean-Tia, in Yonville, right across the street from French Laundry. I worked um, at Fleur de Lis for a little bit under um, Hubert Keller, who is just a gastronomical genius and just a super great guy. Like, he would DJ in Belden Alley during Bastille, um, just such a cool guy, never really lost his cool in the kitchen and just learned so much. Got to work with great names in the business like Raj Parr and Mark Bright, uh, Mickey Schlesinger. Um, they were all great sommeliers and worked with uh, this young lady, Naomi Brilliant, who had a winery out in Sonoma called uh, Rochambeau. So that was that was probably the best the best experiences that I had while I was in San Francisco. All right. And that concludes part one of our interview with Aubrey. Next week, we'll bring you part two. 